Let's pray together. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Open our ears, Lord, and help us to listen. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning once again. And as you are seated, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians, to chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. We began studying uh, this book, Paul's letter to the Philippians, back in October. Uh, we went through it for about seven weeks, took a break in Advent and Christmas, and now we are going to get back into it uh, for this Sunday and the next seven weeks. We're going to take our time, once again, looking at this letter and considering all that God has to say to us through it. And I hope that we do recognize that whenever we listen to the Bible, whenever we read the Bible, it really is God really speaking to us through his word. That the words we're hearing, the words we're reading are words from God himself. They were breathed out by the Holy Spirit. They are authoritative. They are words of life for us. And for us as a church, at this moment in our life together, in this new season, this new day for our church, it is of infinite importance that we not take a single step forward ever without first going to our knees, opening our Bibles, opening our hearts, and saying, God, what, what do you have to say to us? So back to first things first this morning, back to asking God what he has to say to us through this letter. If you have it open in front of you, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, you'll notice that the first word of verse 12 is this important word in Scripture. It says, therefore. And that means it is linked to all that has come before. All that Paul is about to say to us this morning is linked to and drawing from everything he has said already. So for the sake of time and in keeping with how Paul liked to write very often in his letters, I would like to summarize uh, about a chapter and a half or so of Philippians, seven sermons worth of content in one really long run-on sentence. So here it goes. Here's all what we've covered so far in one long run-on sentence. Here's what we've covered. To the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi and who are at Truro Anglican Church, in Fairfax, Virginia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who makes us partners in the gospel and partakers of grace and preserves us in himself. And because he is at work in you and because he is emboldening you and because he is proclaimed through you, you can rejoice in this Jesus and live for this Jesus and even die for this Jesus and hope in this Jesus and love like this Jesus. And you can have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, the one who came and made himself nothing and was obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross and who rose again and who is Lord and highly exalted forever to the glory of God the Father, period. There's where we've been. Thank you. Thank you. So, want me to do it again? I can do it again. I'll, I'll save it. So with all that in mind, all that up until this point, Paul only has one point this morning for the church in response. In these verses, Paul has one point in response to all of the depth of all of the riches of salvation in Christ, Paul has one point, and it's this. Salvation works inside out. Salvation works inside out. 
The salvation that we have received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The salvation we could never work to earn by the power of the flesh is a salvation that, praise God, works itself inside out by the very power of God in us. That's his one point this morning. Salvation works inside out. And then as Paul goes on, we'll see this. He gives the church one example of that. Or you could say one way to apply it. And then he gives us two reasons why it's important. That's our framework this morning as we get back into this letter. One point, one application, two reasons why it matters. First, look with me at his one point. We see it in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. He writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, there's a really important for there, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in the first half of verse 12, we see again, like many other places in this letter, how much Paul loves the church. This is a letter of love. It's a pastoral letter to a people he has great affection for. He calls them his beloved. We see how the church has been following Jesus faithfully, both when he's been with them or when he's been absent. But in the second half of verse 12, after commending them, Paul commands them, and it gets tricky for a moment. Because on its own, if Paul's command here at the end of verse 12, if it's taken out of context, if it's isolated on its own, it could be quite easy to misunderstand or misapply what Paul is saying. Here it is again. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The problem is when we put a period there at the end of verse 12 and isolate it on its own. I have heard this verse quoted on its own. I'm sure you have too. As if there's a period there. As if it's its own unique thought. And when it's presented that way, when we hear this phrase presented, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it can be depressing. It can be overwhelming. It's almost like Paul is saying, work out, work for your salvation in some in some way. Well, it's almost like Paul anticipated that confusion. It's almost like Paul knew that that was how it could be misunderstood, and so he continues his thought in verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So verse 12, work out your own salvation. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. Example of, of, of what Paul is saying here, how this works. You may have seen a father dance with his young daughter. You may have experienced this. And you, you may have seen in that uh, the father let his daughter put her feet up on his feet while he dances. A father dancing with his young daughter. She's little enough. She's dependent enough upon him where she can do that. She can put her feet up on his feet while he dances. Who's dancing? The father? Yes. The daughter? Also yes. Who's moving their feet? The father? Yes. The daughter? Also yes. Who is moving? The father? Yes. The daughter? Also yes. But who is working the dance? The father? Who is giving the gift of the dance? 
the Father, so it is with our Father. He gives the gift of salvation. He gives the gift of his Son. He, in a sense, puts us upon himself, within himself, puts our feet up upon his feet. You could think of it this way. Our Father gives the gift of the dance of unity with his Son. Do we work? Yes, very much so, yes. But who works the work? God does. Who works the dance? God does. This is the plain reading of verse 13. For it is God who works. And the word work here in verse 13 is literally the word energeo. It's a different word for work than he used in verse 12, incidentally. What he's saying here in verse 13 is, for it is God who energeos, energies in you, effects it in you, both to will and to energeo, work for his good pleasure. One of my favorite seminary professors, Steve Brown, no relation, uh, used to say it this way. He said, you take the first step, God takes the second step, and by the time you get to the third step, you turn around and realize it was God who took the first step. It's kind of how it works. God does his work of salvation, and then his work of salvation continues in us as he empowers us, as we say every week at the end of our liturgy, to do the work he has given us to do. Paul would write elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15.10 this, By the grace of God I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. But then catch what Paul says next. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Do we work out our own salvation? Yes. That's what we're told in verse 12. Work it out. But God works out our salvation. Yet not I, but Christ in me. That's Paul's one point here. Salvation works inside out. So after making his one point, Paul gives one interesting example. Of all the things he could choose to apply, of all the the areas he could choose to put his finger on, he goes here with his one example, one application in verse 14. It's pretty short, but boy, it packs a difficult punch. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. There's his example. There's his application for the church of Jesus Christ. After the grand crescendo of chapter 1, of extolling the, the excellencies of Jesus, of going into what we, what we call the Christ hymn in the first verses of chapter 2, extolling the, the humility and the lordship of Jesus, the one point of application has to do with grumbling and disputing. It's interesting. Why would Paul emphasize that of all things? Why grumbling and disputing? It's because Paul is actually putting his finger on what has always been the heart of the problem for God's people, which is a problem of the heart. This goes back all the way to the Exodus. God is saying to the church, uh, Paul is saying to the church in Philippi and also to us, you are connected with the people of God all the way back to then. And look, even then they grumbled. God, what's he do? He leads people through the Red Sea, they grumble. He gives them manna from heaven, they grumble. 
He defeats massive armies that far outnumber his people. What do they do? They grumble. You flip through the Old Testament, on and on and on. The examples go of God saving, God redeeming, God rescuing, God intervening. And like a paragraph later, what are God's people doing? They're grumbling and they're disputing. At least we're not at all like those people. Am I right? Not at all. But since God's word brings it up today, thank you, Paul, we need to spend a few minutes this morning talking about this habit that we have all inherited, the habit of grumbling and disputing. You can turn to the person next to you and say, he's talking about you, not me. <laughs> talking, and that's true. So in this one example here in verse 14, this one point of application, the church of Jesus Christ is given a clear message. You, as God's chosen people, are going to be tempted to follow in the same pitfalls that have entrapped God's chosen people, namely grumbling and disputing. But you, as God's chosen people, now ransomed by Christ, are called and enabled to be a new people, a new kind of people, to break with that. According to God's word here... According to Philippians, a fundamental way, fundamental way that we as God's people break with the pitfalls of the past is to stop grumbling and disputing. As we work out our salvation, as God is working in us, one of the first, you can think about it this way, one of the first toxic weeds that God wants to uproot from the soil of our hearts is the weed of grumbling and disputing. It's that fundamental, that important. God in Christ, by the power of his spirit, wants to make you into a new man. He wants to make you into a new woman. He wants to make us into a new people. And one of the principal ways he works his salvation out, inwardly and then outwardly, is to quiet grumbling and disputing. Because God doesn't like the way it sounds to his ears. Now, as usually is the case in Philippians, this has personal Application and corporate application. Applies to our life as individuals and to our life as the church. And as I say quite often, I want you to know this, I am preaching to myself here, okay? (laughs) I really am. A few months ago, I stumbled across a YouTube video of a veteran pastor giving uh, advice to young pastors. I was enjoying everything he had to say, taking notes, uh, just taking very much, taking all of it very much to heart. And then he said something that made me wish I had never clicked on the video. Because um, I knew he was right. And I knew it was from the Lord. And here's what he said. Pastors, sometimes you need to confess your sins to your congregation. That's what he said. I have tried to pretend for weeks like I didn't hear him say that. <laughs> and then this week comes... And I'm preparing to teach on Philippians, where Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And I hear God continue to say, hey, Jamie, remember what that guy said in that YouTube video? So I am preaching to myself here because I can be a terrible grumbler. And I can make excuses for myself. I'm hungry. I'm stressed. I'm busy. I'm tired. But my goodness, can I get into a zone I'm sure none of you are like this at all, where I can just grumble and grumble and grumble. Here's a scenario for you. 
I can get in my car to drive home all the way down Main Street grumbling about traffic. Pull into my driveway, grumble. Ah, it's Wednesday night. No one took the trash out to the curb. I guess I got to do it again. My front porch, there's the broom on the front porch again for the eighth day in a row. No one's going to put it away. I guess I got to put it away. Open my front door. Ah, they threw all their shoes over the entryway again. I guess I got to clean it up again. Someone left the bathroom light on. I should make my kids pay the electricity bill, see how they, how they like it then. I can tell the heat's been turned up again. Someone put the 73, not 72. I should make my kids pay the gas bill this month. Someone left their breakfast dishes out, and it's dinner time. There they go again, not doing their dishes. Oh, we're out of bananas. No one cares about my precious bananas. I can grumble. I'm going to keep going. We'll be here all day. I can grumble. And I make myself miserable, and I make my family miserable. I never share this with the search committee, by the way. Just want you to know. <laughs> now, that kind of grumbling actually does the opposite of the work that God is doing in my heart. God is working in me, and I'm working against it the more I grumble. Uh, instead of being grateful for his grace in my life, his work in my life, my family, the things he's given me, I am I'm cultivating an arrogance and an entitlement in my heart. And it chokes out spiritual growth. And it chokes out worship. It chokes out everything that God is doing to me. Grumbling and disputing are toxic weeds of the heart that will choke out the work that God is doing in your heart. So how is the gospel then good news for grumblers like me? Well, it's good news because instead of God saying to me, Jamie, stop being such a terrible grumbler. Work harder, Jamie. God is saying, lean harder. Lean harder on Jesus. Lean harder on the power of the Spirit. Lean harder on, on Christ in you who is working this out of you. Now, this has a corporate application as well for the church. And I think it's this. It's that the more and more a church is surrendered to Jesus the less and less that church will grumble and dispute. Because these are old habits. They trace back to the Exodus. And when you read Exodus and they grumble, so often their grumbling is this. We want to go back to slavery. We want to go back to death. God, you've led us out of death into life. We've seen your miraculous provision, but we want to go back to Pharaoh. We want to go back to slavery. Grumbling and disputing in the church is like someone puts on an old song. And it's an old song of death. And Jesus, by his power, wants to work it out of a church. Grumbling and disputing will prevent a church from growing. Because these are chains of bondage around a church. And they directly contradict the gospel of freedom that we claim to believe. If we say... As a church, that we believe the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that sets us free from sin, sets us free from death, makes us alive forever with Christ. And then we turn around two minutes later, one paragraph later, and fill the pews or the undercroft or our community groups with grumbling and disputing, then actually what God will do in his kindness is he'll hold us back. And he'll keep lovingly pointing out 
and revealing these toxic weeds until we finally allow him to sanctify them out of us. I mean this literally, so please don't be offended. I want to use this phrase intentionally, maybe a bit provocatively. God wants to sanctify the hell out of us. You hear what I'm saying? I mean it literally. God wants to sanctify the hell out of us. It's one example here. It's an easy one, Paul. Thanks a lot. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, as we draw to a close in these next few minutes, we see in our text these two final reasons why this outworking of salvation matters. And the first is so that the church would shine as stars. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, having, having a family resemblance, without blemish in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. God saves us in Christ. He works that salvation inside out by his spirit. He uproots those weeds of grumbling and disputing so that we would shine as stars. And so that shining as stars, we would do so much more than simply stand in contrast to the world. That is not why God wants to make his church shine as stars, just that we would stand in contrast to the darkness in the world, but so that we would actually actively dispel the darkness in the world. We would push the darkness back. We help straighten what's crooked and twisted. It's not the church versus the world. That's not the picture of the church in the New Testament versus the church versus the world. It's the church for the world, that you would shine as stars, dispelling the darkness, pushing back the darkness. And then even more than that, this image of stars. When Paul wrote these words to the church about shining as stars, he had in mind that bright stars in a dark sky also serve a navigational purpose for lost people. It helps a lost people find their way. Jesus said in John 3, 17, he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but so that through him the world might be saved. The same principle applies to us, to Truro, to the body of Christ. We are not here at 10520 Main Street to condemn the world. We are here to shine as stars, shining with the light of Jesus himself. So we heard last week on Epiphany, pointing the lost world that's out there to himself, that they might be saved through him. Our text finishes here in verse 16 through 18 with the last reason why it matters that our salvation works inside out. And it's so that the church and so that this church, we build each other up in Christ. It's a dysfunctional church that when you get back in your car to go home or when you leave a meeting, you just feel beat up and you feel drained and you don't want to go back to be around those people anymore. The church of Jesus Christ, you get back in your car, you leave a meeting, you've been built up in Christ. Paul says in verse 16, we should be holding fast to the word of life. Word of life, that's shorthand for Paul, for holding fast to Jesus, the word about Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, the word of life. So then the day of Christ, I may be proud I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Using an athletic example there. 
And then he goes to an Old Testament example in verse 17 of the completion of an act of worship here. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul is laying a foundation here. This is the foundation of how the church of Jesus Christ is to exist with one another. He rejoices in them. They rejoice in him. He's aware of what's going on with them. He's addressing some grumbling in their midst, some disputing in their midst, but he rejoices with them. And he's in prison and he's suffering and he's not sure when he'll see them again, but they rejoice with him. It's a mutual rejoicing society. How very different (laughs) that is from the church. I'm sorry, how very different from the world that is. That that out there, as as, as we go so often through our, our, our days and our weeks, we feel as though we live in a world that is one upping one another. And yet God calls the body of Christ to build up one another in Christ. How very different. God makes us new. God makes us different. In our feet, in our hearts, in our hands, in our minds, in our lips, what God does is he does his work in us and he gives us the dance of unity with his son. And are we dancing? Yes, but he's dancing. Are we working? Yes, but he's working. So let's pray before we go on and ask for his help. I think of the quote from Augustine. He says, oh God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So Lord, I pray for me, for each person here, and for this church as a body that we would find our rest in you, that you would do your work in us, that you would pull us onto your feet, O Father, in unity with Jesus, fill us with your spirit, pull out whatever toxic weeds need to be pulled out, Lord, just kill them, make us alive in Christ. Do your work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.